Hey everybody, welcome to the JDO Show. I am J. David Osborne here with Rob Volmar. Hi, Bo- Hi Rob. What's up? What is up? We had some massive technical difficulties getting to this point, but had a pretty good conversation about uh, TLC and waterfalls and sticking to the ones that you're used to instead of instead of chasing after waterfalls, you know? Um, and the consensus that we came to is that we didn't understand the song. Yeah, because so. they're pretty stationary. You know, if you yeah. chase a waterfall, you just you just run into it. Yeah, or through it. Yeah. Right. Um, today on the show, we are going to be talking about Charles Eisenstein's Climate, a new story, which was a welcome change of pace from some of the other stuff that we've been reading recently. Not that it's bad, right? But whereas with the Linkola and the Zerzin, we had, uh, we could say, a slightly pessimistic outlook on things. Um, Eisenstein, while no less cynical about the way things are going, I think provides uh, perhaps a, a more hopeful way out. Do you think that's a fair statement? Yeah, it's definitely a, a tonal counterbalance. And, uh, you know, I think that that will be useful to people sort of grappling with these broader issues because, uh, you know, the, the, the call to despair is, uh, is loud and never ending. And so, and, you know, I don't think that, uh, I don't think that Eisenstein is necessarily any more optimistic, um, intrinsically optimistic, but, um, I think that, uh, you know, having a, a clear idea of what you're um, sort of struggling to preserve as opposed to identifying what you're fighting against, um, there's a, which is a, a, a kind of critical inflection point that he uh, raises. Uh, I think that that does have the, the possibility of sort of being transformative in the way people approach um, the question, mm-hmm. the questions. Yeah, the, yeah, exactly. So basically, I figured that we could sort of split this discussion up into at least two parts, which are Eisenstein's analysis of what the actual problem regarding the quote-unquote climate crisis is, um, and then a few of his ideas. Maybe it could be in like sort of like the second half and, and kind of go over those. Um, to start off, basically... Uh, Eisenstein has a real problem with the idea of um, of fixing the climate by sort of looking in a myopic way at carbon emissions. And he says right. that entirely too much focus has been placed on <clears throat> this kind of mathematical, you know, if we get X amount of carbon out of the atmosphere, it will fix our problems entirely. And his problem with that uh, has a few dimensions to it. The first one, he, he seems to definitely be suspicious of anything that gives the government or massive corporations uh, more power than they already have. Uh, he's very suspicious of things that skirt a kind of holistic earth healing, right? Um those are the two that I could think of right now that seem to be his problems. If you can think of something to add to that, 
I think that would be helpful. Um, so, you know, just to take on that first point, you know, um, you know, it's valuable to look at look at these different authors and the ideas that they're putting forward as as part, you know, where are they in the broader population of people talking about these issues and uh, that 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 particular point of um, you know who who is going to make these changes um, is a really important one because especially you know for uh, people in the in the anarchy field like giving the state more power is never the answer and and if you want to approach that from like a you know a non anarchic criticism it's like okay we have you know the, the the situation that we currently are facing you know is a direct result of abdicating more power of control uh to the state and to you know the corporations that that service our deliver us our services you know so to speak and so you know like you know we're having this conversation in the context of the of the COVID outbreak right now and it's like look like like look at at the at the conversation about what should be done and it's uh lord like give the give the state you know give google give you know these people as much power as they need to keep us safe and with with the underlying premise of that being that they're even capable of that mm -hmm. um you know we feel powerless and we feel like the solution is to become more powerless mm -hmm. uh and, and so in relation to the to the question of of climate um I think I mentioned uh, a book to you not not that long ago called Climate Leviathan. We may have mentioned it in the course of one of our other uh, conversations as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so let, let me unpack that just a little bit. Um, that's a book by, yeah, I'm just Amazoning it here. Okay, Joel Wainwright and Jeff Mann. And they talk about, um, you know, what are the you know what are the likely um, political ramifications of uh, the climate crisis? And they and they kind of go through and and their their critique is kind of mapped out in the Punnett Square, where you have um, a trend towards um, sort of broader political um, organization on a global level versus. Uh, more pervasive um, governance on a local level and then uh, it basically um, and then the the other dimension of that axis is capitalism or no capitalism and so <coughs> excuse me one of the you know their their analysis said that the the trend that we see is towards a more global more capitalist solution to this, you know, to the problem, which results in what they call the climate leviathan, which is a, you know, a uh, transnational um, public-private 
um, kind of collaborative uh, solution, you know, with creating carbon markets and, you know, saying, you know, you can cut down trees here, but you can't cut them down here. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, you know, that's kind of what Eisenstein was also um, alluding to. Uh, there's a journalist named uh, Corey Morningstar who's done some really interesting reporting. Um, it's like in America right now, you know, with the, the administration that we have, um, it's hard to imagine that governance is, is somehow trending more toward the, toward the global. But, you know, you can think of these things also as being a, a pendulum you know, that's that swing back and forth. And so when you have a, you know, when you have a, a force like uh, the Trump administration that's sort of artificially holding the pendulum up on this side of extreme nationalism, we can only imagine that as that force is removed, that the swing in the opposite direction towards, you know, this like cooperation between nations and, you know, all of this stuff that, that we can see in the, um, you know, Extinction Rebellion and Greta Thunberg and all of this um, kind of uh, narrative building that's going on, that as that swings the other direction, as there are emergencies that, that begin to, like this one that we're experiencing mm -hmm. with the mm -hmm. COVID outbreak, where there are emergencies, like what, to what extent would people be like, just do whatever you got to do. And if that means you know, putting iron sulfate into the ocean or do, you know, going and putting aerosols in the atmosphere to, mm -hmm. to block out sunlight, um, then, then that's just what's got to happen. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I think Eisenstein is, is rightfully um, not just skeptical of that approach, but like that is only going to uh, treat a fever that is the symptom of a much larger mm -hmm. problem. Um, right. Well, I think that you bring up a lot of points uh, that are really salient to what Eisenstein was talking about. In particular, this idea, this is something that I've often thought when I, uh, you know, would drive through, I used to live in, in Portland, in Oregon, and when I would drive uh, pretty much anywhere, you have to drive through relatively thick forests, right? Um, that Pacific Northwest, those big trees. And, of course, there's a lot of logging that goes on up there. And I had been of the mindset that, you know, well, these logging companies cut down trees, but they plant two trees for every one tree that they cut down. So in the end, we have more trees. So what's the big deal? And Eisenstein brings up a really great point with that, where it's like, where it's basically, if you think of, if you begin to conceive of trees as living beings, um, it's kind of like saying like, well, what's the big deal? Like for every person that we kill, we artificially inseminate a woman with twins, right? So there's actually more people at the end of the day. So what's the big deal with killing this particular tree? Um, Eisenstein, without getting too, I think, uh, for lack of a better term, because I don't think there's anything wrong with being a hippie, without getting too hippie-ish, gets really close to this idea that we have to stop thinking of things in terms of their their numbers, right? Um, he calls it, I have it here actually, he divides people 
and how they feel about climate change into five different parts, right? So first of all, there are the skeptics, and I think he has a really kind of smart and generous, maybe overly generous view of people who are climate change skeptics. He goes through this kind of um, bit where he talks about, uh, he's like, I'm a mathematician and I'm super smart, basically. And even with me, I can go back and forth and look at a bunch of different stuff that's telling me alternate things and I have to figure it all out for myself. So what people who uh, have to do is they have to sift through a lot of stuff. And when you see 97% of people agree that there's a problem with the climate, it's like, what does that actually mean? Like 97% of who, right? Or whom, rather. Um, the second category that he brings up is techno-optimism, which the thought of techno-optimism is that uh, climate change is just another problem to be solved. It's just another thing to be trouble troubleshooted. There is uh, climate orthodoxy, which is kind of what we've been talking about, where um, it's all about carbon emissions. And you have this very simple thing, like at the at the expense of everything else, you lower climate emissions. You don't focus on anything else. After that, he talks about climate justice and systems change. So as we're on a spectrum, right? We're going from complete skeptic to kind of where he wants us to be, um, what he would call radical. Um, he says that climate justice or climate change isn't an environmental issue. It is a social, racial, and economic issue. Moreover, the system's dependency on the profits from the fossil fuel-based in, in industrial economy means that climate change can be addressed only by changing capitalism as we know it, right? So that's kind of where he wants us to be. And then there's climate catastrophism. So I guess I misspoke when I first said that because this is also too far on the other end for him, right? Mm. This whole kind of uh, this despair and, uh, you know, chicken little kind of running around talking about the sky falling. This viewpoint basically says that it is already too late to prevent catastrophic climate change, except perhaps with an immediate response far beyond anything that is politically conceivable today, and perhaps not even then. The more moderate prognosticators foresee a dramatic collapse of society, a population crash, a socio-political upheaval, and a major regress in technological levels. Those on the more extreme end predict temperature rises of six, between 6 and 10 degrees Celsius, within the next few decades, which would mean the end of civilization and possibly the extinction of the human species. Some, such as Guy McPherson, predict human extinction within 10 years. So I just gave you a lot. I'm sorry about that. But that I think that kind of helps to frame it, right? And so there are a few... Uh, the area that I'm the most interested in is Eisenstein's sort of holistic approach to actually being able to do something about quote-unquote climate change right and it's that climate justice and activism so he has this great bit my favorite bit in the whole book it's the it's the rhino story do you remember the rhino story i do remember the rhino story <clears throat> it's the part of the the book where i was I, I listened to this on audiobook in my in my car on my commute back and forth to work in my gas burning machine right um and so this one actually made me weep on my way to work. I had to compose myself before I went inside because he talks about a student that he had who would send him, who had sent him an email where she talked about how distressed she was about the climate. Um, but particularly, she had read something about uh, rhinos going extinct 
And that was the thing that really triggered her. And so in her email, she kind of says, you know, there's this police brutality. There's, off, there's racism, sexism, transphobia, all this stuff. And I'm breaking up about the rhinos. Like, what's the deal? And Eisenstein takes that in his response to it. He conceives of him sort of meeting with the archetypal rhino in dream time or spirit or whatever. And he's talking to the rhino and the rhino asks him like what he did during his time on earth to, to save the rhinos. And he said, you can say any number of things. You can say, you know, I fought against police brutality, right? I fought against racism, sexism, you know, all these things that you wouldn't immediately connect to the climate. What Eisenstein does here that I think is brilliant is that he he says, in as much as you do one of those things, you are affecting the whole in your own way. Yeah. I think that really resonates, too, because for a couple of reasons, one being that, uh, you know, let's say somebody has their, you know, Prince Siddhartha moment where they realize the, the state of the, you know, converging crises that we're, that we're having, and they're like, what do I do? You know, and there re- there just is not a good answer, right? To that, if you are sort of engaged in a in a paradigm where there is there is a one thing or a complex of things or um, a course of action that you that you should engage in, um, you know, we talked uh, I think about this a little last time when we talked about. Um, John Zerzan, it's like how okay if if technology bad and civilization bad and you know all these things are bad, but you're like on the radio every week, like are you a hypocrite? And you know the the first and logical response to that is the fact that I'm a hypocrite does not discount what I'm saying. Right. Like if if uh, if hypocrisy uh, was if hypocrisy was the the bar that everyone had to clear in order to say a thing that was true, mm-hmm. no true things would ever be said. Right, right, uh, exactly. And, you know, but, but the second thing is, like, as we're, you know, we are all deeply, deeply embedded into a system of technological dependence that you can't... You can extract yourself from it, but the further that you extract yourself, the more difficult it becomes. There, there becomes some fundamental things that it's like you think that you've, okay, I've gotten rid of this thing and I'm using a composting toilet and I'm, you know, riding an exercise bike to charge my phone and, I'm, you know, all of this stuff. It's like you begin to realize it's like there's always another string there that you as you cut one string, you're like, shit, there's three more. I, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, there are strings here that I didn't even realize yeah. until removing strings became a thing that I was, that right. I was, in, right. that I was interested in. And so you can, I think that that's how you spiral into climate catastrophism is when you realize that there's, or when you arrive at the conclusion that there is nothing that I can mm-hmm. do. Right. Right. And, if I were cynical, which of course I'm not, but if I was, mm-hmm. uh, you, I might say, you know, the, there are, there are 
invested powers out there who benefit from and profit from your sense of helplessness. Mm -hmm. And so that narrative of, oh, did you realize there's something going on with the climate? Well, now what are you going to do about it? Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Uh, is, that is a powerful tool mm -hmm. for, for social control. And so to, for someone to come along and say, hey, you don't, like, it's, you're too little to fix this problem. Uh, and so the things that you can identify on the scale that you actually occupy, the context that you actually occupy, it, that's enough. As yeah. long as we understand what kinds of actions that that we're talking about, um, I I think I've referenced you know uh, kind of Alan Moore's um, thing about phase transition and and how it relates to the culture, and it's that uh, you know there's nothing in the design of a molecule of of water that allows you to predict uh, either ice or steam, mm -hmm. and, and so, but but through either uh, adding energy to that system or extracting energy from that from another system, uh, you are contributing towards its uh, phase shift, its phase transformation, and what's interesting is that. That quanta of energy that is either extracted at the moment before you transition to ice or that quanta of energy that's added before you transition to steam is a minute amount. And so even if you only have a little bit of energy to a little bit of energy to add or a little bit of energy to remove, you know, everything counts in large amounts. And so that's your impetus to to take action on on the scale and in the ways that you can affect change um, without saying, well, hey, if I can't if I can't solve this whole problem by myself, then, you know, we're just we're lost. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you know, we've we've literally never solved problems by ourselves. So, I right. don't, you know. Right. No, and it's, you know, I, I have moments of pessimism that are largely uh, have to do with my neighbors and people who I'm around because uh, I'm, I'm way too, I guess, narcissistic to, to beat myself up. So I, I, <laughs> I project sure. it on other people. So I, the other day, somebody was moving out of an apartment nearby mine and they filled up the dumpster with all the stuff that they didn't want to take with them. And um, there's another dumpster. If you walk up the hill a bit, there's a was a completely empty dumpster. But you can kind of probably guess where this is going. Most of my neighbors chose to simply place their trash along the sides of the dumpster and on top of the dumpster because, you know, taking the extra, like, two-minute hike to go throw your bag away was just too much. It was too much to ask of them. And I, for the most part, live in an apartment complex with healthy, able-bodied college students right who could potentially do that but just kind of didn't want to so it's when i see things like that where i'm like oh man we'd have a ways 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 to go you know but again like what eisenstein would do would say to that is 
uh, in a way, kind of mind your own business, right? And I love the phase transition idea with uh, uh, with more there because that seems to be an almost uh, like an alchemical idea, right? And you can sort of take that and you can take the sort of um, the hermetic tradition of, you know, as above, so below. And you can kind of, uh, by, by changing yourself and changing your own habits and uh, learning to be still, I think you can actually sort of, you can project that out and sort of change your reality around you. And that doesn't mean it changes base reality. It just means that it changes your particular perception of it. And again, if number one, that just seems like a healthier way to live. It seems like things like depression would be much more few and far between. And secondly, if enough people did that, then there actually would be a recognizable change. So just sort of, yeah, just understanding the smallness of everything, right? Um, go ahead. I think it's like, and if you think about this in contrast to the, the model that we were talking about with this sort of like top, top down solutions to these problems, you know, um, lasting mass change has, has like as far as i know I, I can't find an example of when that has ever come from the top down and been durable or successful yeah. and so if yeah and so it's like we we can we can choose to foster community for example that's a thing that we can be doing we can choose to foster community and both model behavior and allow our behavior to change by modeling that of others that we choose to foster community with. Um, and in, in doing that, you know, we're, we're um, being an, sort of an agent for change in the local context, um, which, you know, by whatever metric that you might decide to measure it, like, what happens on the local level is going to just become increasingly important. Like even if we, like if we invest all these solutions into, you know, the big state, if you will, it's like, do you think they're going to be successful? <laughs> no, like, no, no. Or do you do you think they're going to give a shit about what's happening on the block where you live, or in the community where you live, or the city where you live? No, they're going to be you know, busy altering the pH of the coast off of yeah. Guyana. Yeah. You know, they're not going right. to be thinking about you at all. And so, so that this is this is an interesting sort of space in between. You know, the uh, you know the the systems thinking deep ecologists of Eisenstein, and then sort of directly to the left of that would be sort of like. Joanna Macy's, um, you know, the work that reconnects, which is, which shares a lot of themes in common with Eisenstein, which is to, you know, to connect yourself emotionally to the reality of the interdependent world that we live in, but it's probably dying, and mm -hmm. we're gonna die too, but at least we can all die together, <laughs> and that would be, and that's better, right, than than sure. feeling separated from the world and it dying and you dying separate so dying mm -hmm. dying in community with the world is better and then you know sort of the the edge of the the, 
you know, the bleeding edge of the of the spectrum is, um, you know, like Jim Bendel's deep adaptation, which is like, no, we're, yeah, we've we've cooked the goose on this one. There's no, there there's clearly no political solution that's ever going to take this problem seriously, and so we just need to uh, uh, start making our peace mm-hmm. um, with ourselves and with our culture and with the world and you know, what happens, happens, and, you know. Yeah, to a couple of things. So I'm really, it's so, we're in sync, dude, because you brought up um, systems, sis, like systems theory and, and, and considering <laughs> environmentalism, environmentalism, which is a troubled word, with a complex system, and I have the quote pulled up right here because that's exactly where I wanted to go. So this is, this is from the Eisenstein book. Uh, Bodies, ecosystems, genomes, societies, and the planet are complex systems. It is tempting to view them otherwise, as extremely complicated machines, because then we can apply our familiar methods of top-down problem-solving and feel like we are in control of the situation. The epitome of this illusion is war thinking, as described earlier in the book, and it extends to every technology of control, from border walls to antibiotic drugs to concrete waterways. Each ends up generating awful, unintended consequences, usually including the very opposite of what it was attempting to control. Immigration, disease, flooding. Any narrative, like the standard narrative of climate change, is a lens that illuminates some things and obscures others. It obscures, unfortunately, some of the very things we need to pay attention to most if planet Earth is going to heal. In the geomechanical view, such things as topsoil erosion, pesticides, aquifer depletion, biodiversity loss, conservation of whales or elephants, toxic and radioactive waste, and so on were once seen, and in many cases still seen, as relatively inconsequential to climate change. Such oversights are understandable if we see Earth as a fantastically complicated machine. But if we see Earth as alive, then we know that, of course, destroying its living tissue will render it unable to deal with fluctuations of atmospheric components. So I like that quote a lot. I think that sort of encapsulates a lot of what he talks about. There are two pretty large chapters in this book about water and about forests, which is where I think Eisenstein, that, that those are his real trouble areas. So instead of focusing on carbon, he thinks uh, we should instead be focusing on uh, things like dams. Uh, water is just super important. He talks about how when we create, uh, like, we can create humid humid dryness, right? I'm not sure if I understood all the science in this book, but it's the idea that if you make a smog cloud, like you see over L.A., what happens is that water that is attempting to get back up into the atmosphere gets trapped into that haze, and it creates a kind of humid desert because there's no rain that's able to come back down. Uh and then, yeah, and then the stuff that he talks about in forests that we don't necessarily think about, it's like, you know, it's not a matter of replacing trees. It's like if you cut down a tree, especially if that tree had roots that went underground, right, that were perhaps connected to mycelial networks that contain knowledge that's thousands of years old, right? Like, um, sorry, I got, got a call. I'm doing this on my phone, so I have to occasionally uh, click off of a call, but... Um, Basically, I love what he did in this book by the idea of thinking in, in terms of Gaia theory, which is the idea that the Earth is, this, is a living being with, with tissue and, and organs. Um, 
that for me is a lot easier to understand than some of the more complex ecological processes that are affected by, you know, human interference. So it was interesting as I was reading this book, I have a daughter who's five. And uh, as I was reading that, thinking about like, you know, all, all of these, you know, one of the things about, about climate skepticism is that I, I think that people have like a gut test, mm -hmm. like, because clearly if you, like you, like I've, you know, I've spent years studying this stuff and I, I still don't feel competent nor should I to go out and make scientific assertions based on the fact that I think I know something. Like, all of the knowledge that I have is with seed. It's not something that I myself, like, well, I tell you what, let me spend a year in the meteorological data and I'll get back to you. Because I could spend a million years in the meteorological data and I still wouldn't have anything more meaningful to tell you about about climate uh, climate warming or, or anything mm -hmm. else, really. Um, so so these are narratives that, that are received. And I think that they that they have to pass a gut test based on people's actual like lived experiences. So as I was thinking about, you know, Gaia theory and like how successful is this as a narrative? Now in me, you know, someone who's spends a lot of time thinking about um, the, the earth and the systems that we inhabit and how we interact with them, you know, you tell me the Earth is a living being. I'm like, hell yeah, Captain Planet, let's do this, you know. Um, right. But 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 everybody's not me, mm -hmm. and uh, and I have to be skeptical of how that narrative makes me feel good about myself, and so therefore mm -hmm. uh, maybe I'm more inclined to, to to jump on board with it. So I I went to my daughter, whose knowledge base is more limited uh she's really good um telling you about which episodes of the story bots that we've already watched uh-huh and, and uh that kid ryan on youtube she can tell you a lot of things about ryan and his life um, okay well after uh, this one we can do a podcast with her and you know we can go through <laughs> ryan's uh youtube <laughs> yeah she's got a lot she's got a lot to say it'll probably get a lot of hits too so there's right. that uh, but so I asked her, I said, uh, uh, Eleanor, is, is the earth alive? Mm -hmm. She was like, yeah. Mm. And I was like, oh, okay, well, are trees alive? And she's like, yeah. And I'm like, okay, I know that they're living in the sense that they grow, but like, you know, are they, are they alive like you're alive? And she was like, yeah. And I was like, okay, well, what about rocks? Are rocks alive? And she was like, kind of. <laughs> and I was like, well, what way are they not alive? She's like, well, they don't, they don't really grow. Ooh, wow. And I was like, okay, but, but they're still like part of, part of a thing that's alive. Like, you know, she's like, yeah. And I was like, okay, that's interesting. All right. So, and, and so I felt like that that was like, I felt like that, that that was a good like gut test of that idea. Like, mm. how do people respond to the idea? And and so if if I had to like compare the efficacy of the the narrative that 
hey, the earth is alive and the things that we do to it matter versus like, hey, how important do you think it is that we maintain this fabulously complex um, system of financial incentives and disincentives in order to get people to consume things so that we can continue to extract these particular types of, you know, it's like when you start trying to explain industrial or modernity and the average person would be like, dude, if that didn't already exist, that would just be too crazy to, uh -huh. to, yeah. to yeah. like, do you think this exists somewhere else? No, that sounds exhausting. Well, it is. Yeah. yeah it yeah, is yeah. exhausting. So, right. um, so I, you know, when you're talking about being able to reach out to people with a, with a message that resonates as being true, um, and, you know, if you're one of these folks who need the authority of science to sign off on an idea before you're willing to get on board with it, like, I don't know how much more science you get than Lynn Margulis, you know, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. James Lovelock, like, you know, yeah. they, they were, they were serious people doing serious work and, you know, um, scientific this is an interesting thing i learned uh i was doing some work last year uh on the history of science and you know the paradigm of science like if you ask a person like how does science work they'd be like well you know they uh they you come up with an idea and if nobody can disprove it then it must be right and it's actually like it's different than that it's like you things become things don't become more true they just become progressively less unfalse mm -hmm. and so the the goal of science is actually to disprove things and that's that's what people are working to do is like oh here's an idea we have oh it seems to be really helpful okay well let's let's chip away every part of it that that we can't that i just can't I chip away the things that i can prove are wrong mm -hmm. And, and so we're not actually working to preserve the truth. We are, we are working to chip away the things that can't be defended. Mm -hmm. And so, and it's like, you know, Margulis and, and Lovelock's work has been out there and it's like, like nobody's, nobody's chipped, nobody's chipped it away. Right. Like, right. They can be like, oh, well that's, you know, that's a, a fanciful way of putting it. It's like, well, if it's fanciful, like, Chip it away. Like, chip it away. Chip, yeah, and, chip away and the fanciful parts. And Mar Margulis herself was not a, you know, when you hear something like Gaia theory, you think of like somebody who likes granola, likes you know smoking the weed. You know, it's like it's all Gaia, bro. Um, but if I re like, I recall that you know somebody who I think we're both a fan of, but Connor Hagib actually studied under Lynn Margulis, and there was a bit. I want to say it was on Rune Soup. I want to say it was when he was talking to Gordon about Margulis that he said that one time he asked her about uh, angels or something to that effect. And she told him, Connor, she's like, I'm not saying that angels don't exist. She's like, but I don't, I don't have enough time to even think yeah. one way or the other about whether that's true. She's like, I'm so focused on – no, you know what? I think it might have been – it was in her interview that she did with Connor. Um, which if anybody who's listening to this wants another good podcast to listen to against everyone with Connor Habib and Rune Soup are, should both be in your little podcatchers. Um, 
But anyhow, so the point that I'm making here is that she wasn't some kind of uh, woo person, and Gaia theory doesn't really come from. Uh, it's not woo. It's not woo. It's, no, it's, it's not woo. It's not like it's not Wicca looking for right. science to <coughs> validate it. It's science going, sort of almost embarrassingly. Oh my God, how did we end up at a Wicca convention? Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Which is yeah. You know, yeah. not not any disrespect to my Wicca brothers and sisters out there. We're just uh, we're not. We're just talking about appeal appeals to authority. So. Right. Right. Um, That's good. <laughs> There was, <laughs> Not, uh, I don't you have know, a problem with Wiccans at all. No. Do your thing. Do your thing, girl. Or guy. Uh, I, you know, I, f- I, one of the parts of the book, of Weisenstein's book, that I found spoke to me the most directly was the chapter on regenerative agriculture. So can yeah. we, yeah. we take a look at that? Totally. One of the things that I found so compelling about that chapter is that's really all I've been studying for like the last three years. And he was so well grounded in that, mm-hmm. um, you know, talking and, and this ties in also to the um, to the issue of forests in particular is, you know, some of the most uh, exciting work that's going on in regenerative agriculture. Uh, so let me go ahead and define that because maybe not everyone in the world is just sitting around with that in their in their bucket of terms. Um, so it, it's valuable to think about agriculture as being on a spectrum. And if we, if we talk about the way that the majority of agriculture is, is uh, performed, uh, um, we could describe that as being industrial agriculture. And mm-hmm. so that involves uh, the plow, you know, the clearing of um, either grasslands or forests in order to get at the uh, fertility that's contained within that soil and then using a variety of invasive uh, techniques like plowing, um, fertilizing, um, monocropping, which is growing one thing to the exclusion of all other things, um, insecticides, herbicides, um, and it's, it's getting crazy now where they're like sending drones out mm-hmm. to do things that people used to do. And so the five staple crops that sort of keep the human race alive and clothed uh, are wheat, corn, soy, rice, and cotton um, are also the most heavily mechanized uh, as well. So that like 99.9% of the, of the um, labor that goes into uh you know, uh, growing, harvesting, processing, distributing, and consuming those five crops uh, are all completely dependent on industrial systems like the burning of fossil fuels, um, big data, uh, decentralized distribution, you know, all of these these very energy resource-intensive things. So, and I'm going to try to truncate this as much as possible because there's kind of a whole like the history of agriculture in the last 150 years that's really valuable to remember that like this is a really new way of um, growing and eating food and it's like quadrupled the world's population 
like just all of the giant explosions of, of human population growth in the past 150 years are all like inextricably tied to this particular way <clears throat> of growing foods. And it also necessitates the continuation of those systems now that we have so many people to feed. And so there's there's kind of this uh, this almost like extortion racket where it's like, well, hey, man, like we're really messing up a lot of ecosystems making food this way. It's like, yeah, well, how are you going to feed eight billion people? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, it's like, right, yeah, right. but when we didn't used to do it this way, there wasn't eight billion people like you mm-hmm. grew the eight, you grew the eight billion people. Yeah. And and but I'm telling you that like. Maybe there's no good way to feed eight billion people. It's like, right. okay, well, you pick which six billion are gonna starve to death. It's like, but I didn't grow the people. Like right. you grew the people. Sure. So, so it it becomes this kind of self perpetuating <coughs> thing. Now, it's really important to make the distinction between industrial agriculture and just agriculture because here's the kicker: agriculture sucks too. Mm-hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. and we've been doing that, you know, basically since the dawn of civilization. This ties directly into Zerzan from our last conversation, which is that agriculture is is an intrinsically extractive, destructive process. Mm -hmm. And so we can go to, um, you know, uh, the Fertile Crescent, which is no longer very fertile, or, you know, read things in a book where it's like, Hey, Northern Africa used to be the breadbasket of the Roman Empire. It's like, what does Northern Africa look like now? It's not a breadbasket. No. Or no. if it is, that bread has dried, dried right out. So it's like a sand um, bucket. Sand yeah. Bucket. And that's what happens. Like that's what agriculture does, and that's why we continually have to push into all of these unde- you know, un and undeveloped by industrial. Um, powers these places because they're the only ones that have any fertility left in their soil so that's that's non-regenerative agriculture which mm-hmm. is just agri- we can just call that agriculture like it's non-regenerative by by its nature now one of the responses to industrial agriculture in the 20th century was this idea of organic agriculture which is a term that I think people are probably familiar with if they don't even if they don't know exactly what all that entails. And, you know, it's like, it's better from a health perspective. Like, it's better from the sense that you are not putting all of these um, chemicals into your body, herbicides, pesticides, you know, all of this stuff. But it to be done at a scale that can actually feed people, there's a lot of, like, systemic problems with it that are just endemic to agriculture yeah it's it doesn't solve any of those any of those problems so regenerative agriculture is this thing that's kind of got its roots it goes back to the 1970s but has really gained a lot of traction in the past 10 years um work of people like alan savory uh who said look what we need is uh animals and trees and uh, natural hydrologic systems to not just extract the fertility from the soil at the smallest rate that we can, 
but actually to put for more fertility into the soil than we take out of it. And so uh, there's a lot of really interesting work being done with that. And he talks about Alan Savory in the book. Um, I'm not sure if he references uh, specifically uh, Mark Shepard, uh, mm-hmm. but Shepard mm-hmm. is doing some interesting work um, where he is working with building uh, an infrastructure for tree crops as a system for feeding the world's 8 billion people. Like to him, he's like, hey, if we don't have an answer to the 8 billion people thing, like we don't have an answer. And so he's looking at uh, uh, acorns and hazelnuts in particular, kind of his his um, solution to the, you know, how do we get enough calories and energy into people's bodies? <clears throat> and, um, and he's got good data that demonstrates that he can produce more high density calories out of a square foot of his systems, the way that he builds them, than someone who's growing corn, which is a that's that's an important answer to a to a question that demands resolution. And so I felt like Eisenstein was like, like the fact that he recognized how central that the way that we that we grow and consume food is to this to the you know the system of solutions to to the larger problem. Um, was really compelling to me like i was like hey you know if i if i had a nickel for every time somebody told me about their climate plan and it didn't involve like how we eat i'd yeah I'd, right i'd have i'd have at least 35 cents yeah dude no and i think that uh something that you mentioned about regenerative farming and uh the the kind of the, the calories per square foot that can be produced using regenerative farming and the the most important part about that, too, for me at least, is the is the people power necessary to make that kind of thing work, right? Mm-hmm. So Eisenstein in this book, if you go back two conversations ago that we had about uh, Penty Lickleleff, whose uh, eco-fascistic idea was that there are entirely too many people in the world and that they need to be eliminated, and you know who gets eliminated first? Um, well, everybody who's not Penty Lickleleff, right? Um, this book has a direct response to that. Uh, I wish I had pulled the exact quote. I should have done that, but I can paraphrase it. So Eisenstein basically recounts a story where he's talking to his brother, and his brother has a, I want to say, 20-acre farm. Um, and he, his brother is also interested in this kind of regenerative farming, uh, permaculture-style uh, growing. And Eisenstein asks his brother, you know, how many people would you need to kind of like have your farm going at maximum potential. And he said, his brother said, you know, not joking, probably 200 people mm-hmm. would be necessary to keep that going. So what Eisenstein says is that when you have, you know, the people who say, you know, there's there's X amount, X billion people in the world, he says it's not a matter of there being too many people. He says it's a matter of them not being allocated correctly. Right. Mm-hmm. And and those people actually, uh, if instead of, you know, and no disrespect to people who have these jobs, but instead of, you know, well, maybe a little disrespect, instead of having a, a bunch of people as like marketing designers and fucking, you know, CEOs and, you know, even even down to 
you know, and it's necessary. You got to feed your family. I'm not, I'm not coming for you. Like, calm down. But even, you know, like people who work at, like, if you take everybody who works at McDonald's, for example, and you, you gave them all jobs on a regenerative farm, uh, it would be better for the environment. And I think better for them, obviously, because they'd be out of the concrete capitalistic prison that is probably causing a lot of despair and just better for the world in general. I think you'd actually, so this allocation idea was huge to me too. It's like, oh, nobody has to die. (laughs) We don't have to open up extermination camps. We can just, we can just give you a a fucking, like a hoe or something and say, get to work. There's a, there's a cat in uh, California who's been doing very similar to work, uh, work to this uh, since the 1970s named John Jevons. And Jevons has, has, been obsessed for five decades now with the question of what is the minimum amount of space that you need to grow enough food for a person in the course of a year without depleting the fertility of that soil. Now, uh, and what's fascinating is, is that the answer is about a tenth of an acre. Now, you can't go out and just, like, he has, like, this is what you would have to grow. And he's, you know, he was a systems analyst originally. So he's, you know, it's everything is down to the micronutrient and, mm-hmm, and you know, mm-hmm. every, everything that you need to not just be fed, which we could do with a bucket of flour, but to be healthy. Yeah. You know, it's like a tenth of an acre. And so what's interesting about this is that we have about 50% of the mass of the United States is used for agriculture in some way or another. And that can include, you know, pasture land and, you know, everything that you can imagine associated with agriculture, like half of the land mass of the United States. But that number continues to go down and it has gone down since the 1950s with the Green Revolution because of all of the efficiencies that, that mechanization brought into the process so i think the number now is at like 47 percent and it and it continues to decline so what what we have is there's an inverse proportion and it's like if you know if we have uh you know what is the current population of the united states 350 something million yeah let's let's just pretend it's that then you know if we have 350 uh, million people and each one of them need a tenth of an acre uh, to grow enough food to persist, then that's, you know, that's only what, 35, uh, 35 million acres, which right. is a lot less than what we're growing on right now. <coughs> right. So you're like, oh, well, that, okay, that's a, that's a solution. We've, we've fixed that problem. It's like, yes, but the trade off is that for a nation of 35 million people, you're going to need 35 or 350 million people. You're going to need 350 million farmers. Mm-hmm. And so what makes that land inefficient is the fact that we don't want to raise the food ourselves. And so if people sort of shudder at the, at the, you know, the language of, you know, people are just need to be reallocated, you know, that, mm-hmm. that that's kind of got like a, like oh man, don't reallocate me. Like I right, want right, to live. Right. I want to live here. Uh, so I just be like, no, chill, chill. It's gonna be cool. I'm gonna 
uh, keeps me real nice. Yeah. The, another way to look at that is that we have tried using an immense amount of energy that will likely not be available into the future. But we'll, we'll set that aside. Uh, we have tried using an immense amount of energy to find a way to feed people without them being involved in their own food growing and processing, and we have failed. Because as the world's population grows, uh, the percentage of people who are starving to death continues to go down, but the number continues to go up. So if you have you know X, X billion people and you have Y percent of them are starving, Y is going down, but X is going up faster. And so even as percentages fall, the sheer number of people starving to death increases. So we're actually like growing a larger people uh, population of people designated to starve to death with every passing year. Mm-hmm. Like we have failed this, this experiment. I'm, and I'm not placing any value judgments on whether it was a good experiment or bad experiment. I'm saying that the outcome has told us that we have failed Mm -hmm. and so the idea that we need to relocalize our food system and invest um if we have land available to invest land into that if we have labor available we invest into that and if all we have is capital then for god's sake put your cap put your capital into that you know Mm -hmm. uh, with the hope that maybe as time goes on you'll have either more personal labor or more land that you can put towards that effort. Like, do what do what you can, starting from where you are, but maybe have an aspiration that, that five years from now you'll be somewhere different and have different kinds of capital other than just um, monetary uh, to put towards that effort. Yeah, and I think that that's a good note to start to close on. I think it's also important to think in, in times like this when we have, you know, pandemic issues and, and we're kind of seeing just how inept large governmental structures are at actually addressing real problems. It's well worth keeping in mind uh, the idea that collapse is imminent <laughs> without, you know, running around and despairing and whatever. But just realistically, we're going to run out of oil one day. Um Things are going to collapse. The next big bug that comes along could be worse than this one, and we won't be able to do anything about it. So it's important, I think, now. I like your idea of a a kind of five-year plan. I was talking to a friend whom I had not spoken to in quite some time, and I mentioned offhand that it's in my plans to have some sort of farming thing going on soon. And the friend said, that is so crazy that you're talking about that because he's like i was just talking to my wife about that like this week we're all kind of like we want to you know get a farm this is not these aren't like fringe ideas anymore because people of all stripes right from your uh sort of right libertarian doomsday preppers all the way to guys like me and i'd venture to say you who are definitely more left uh you know crunchy dudes right um, we're all having the same thought, which is like, this shit doesn't work. 
We've yeah. got to figure something else out. It's really fascinating that if you go, for example, to YouTube and you look up a video about how to uh, how to uh, make fiber from uh, wild metal, right? And you watch that, and it feels like a very kind of apolitical. You know, the dude's like, where you take the nettle, and then you do this, and then you scrape it out, and you do this thing. When you get down to the comment section, you realize that, you know, a piece of content like that sits at the nexus of all of these radically divergent um, kind of uh, loci of, of motivations. Yeah. And that, uh, and there's something like, there's something kind of macabre about that. But there's also, to me, something really powerful about that, which is that for, you know, with all of this, like, political rancor and divisiveness and, you know, feel the threads of the social fabric rending beneath you. And, you know, it's like it's really kind of emotionally upsetting. And and yet we see these points of intersection that didn't exist before. And so rather than looking at it strictly through the the negative lens of, oh God, look at this, you know, look at the look at the America of the nineteen eighties that we just can't seem to patch back together. It's like, okay, but look at look at the world of twenty twenty, where we actually are, that there there are there are new fabrics mm -hmm. that are being woven. And if you can um, if you can weave yourself into those systems, yeah, there may be a lot of people there that, that hold ideas that you don't agree with, but that's always been true. Mm -hmm. I, I don't agree with the idea that my taxes should be used to build drones that bomb brown people, mm -hmm. yet I've absolutely been paying into that system mm -hmm. for the entirety of my adult life. Yeah. Um, so, so that's always been true. Mm -hmm. uh, but there are these, you know, there are these tapestries of resilience that people have been working on, and that people are working on, and that you can you can interface mm -hmm. with that that resilience that's being built. And uh, again, you know, like on the one hand, it's like when we think about this in absolutist terms, like man, I just need 40 acres and a mule. Mm -hmm. It kind of goes back to what Eisenstein was saying about his brother. It's like, dude, you couldn't manage a fourth of an acre. You don't need 40 acres of shit. You need to learn how, you know, uh, Jevons, one of his kind of uh, central tenets is start with one bed in your backyard and learn what to do with it and then build another one. And then build another one. And so that five-year plan isn't just about getting the financial independence necessary to, you know, get back to the land and put on your John Denver albums or, you know, whatever it is. But, like, to build the skills necessary to be able to contribute in a community of people uh, who are all interested in the same thing. Like, if your plan is that, you, again, and this kind of ties back into Eisenstein's biggest theme. If your plan is that you're going to fix this by yourself, your plan is stupid and yeah. it's going to fail. Mm -hmm. And so what you need to be looking at is how do I foster community 
with people who share this particular set of values, whether or not if they hold other values that I might find, uh, you know, somewhere from like hilarious to poisonous. Where do our values intersect? Yeah. Perfect. I want to stop right there because I think that was great. Rob, always good conversations. We're getting further and further into developing a sort of overarching uh, theory, thought process, way of thinking, things to think with. Uh, so I, I think that this conversation has been really valuable and I appreciate your time. Man, it's always good chatting with you. Hey, we'll just let everybody know that uh, if you are feeling uh, overwhelming climate despair, uh, this book will help.